Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and you're tuning in to the second of our Sundance Film Festival 2023 coverage episodes where I have a guest join me to review a handful of films that we saw and get to talk about some of the great stuff that we experienced at this year's festival that we want to be on your radar for when they hopefully eventually get distribution and release. As such, these will be a little bit different than the normal style of episodes, but for the most part, the flow will be very similar. Today, I have with me for the very first time someone I've been long hoping to podcast with. I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to her. She is Hillary Butler of Live for Films. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's nice to uh, dip my toes into the feel and film world. Yeah, well, you've long had the sensibilities to be on this show, particularly, and I've always enjoyed that. So I'm excited that we have a trio of movies that we both were resonating with, I think, and vibing with in a very similar way. And and that's going to be good for discussion, at least two of the three. I, I see two, your two eyes. Yeah, I see your eyes. But we're going to have a conversation <laughs> about why that is, which is, I'm excited for. So, Hillary, how long have you been doing film criticism? What do you do? Where's your work, et cetera? Yeah, so I, I started writing back in 2010, I guess, um, with a different website than where I am currently, actually. When I was in London and I was actually riding the tube one day and decided to answer a tweet that I saw um, of a site that was looking for writers. And I'd always been interested in film, although that's not where my background is, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, but I, I just kind of started writing from there. And I, I can remember the first big review I did for that site was actually for a TIFF opening night film called Score, a hockey musical. Couldn't have been more Canadian a film to choose uh, to write about. And I mean, in retrospect, probably not the greatest one, but yeah, so I just started writing from there. And then I've, I've been writing at Live for Films now for quite a few years. I think I don't even know when I started there. <laughs> many, many moons now. That's awesome. And so it's just a hobby for you, right? Just a kind of an extra thing that you do. It is. Um, in my real life, I'm a veterinarian, which is a very strange kind of conglomerate of things that I do. It's a good conversation starter um, at festivals. Yeah. <laughs> People are often fascinated by that. But yeah, it's, it's been a hobby that uh, is truly a, a, a passion of mine. If I could turn it into a full-time job, I would. But here we are. Yeah, I think a lot of us feel that way. <laughs> Probably the majority of us. Um, well, good. I'm glad that you're able to be here and I love your work. So yeah, definitely people check out Live for Films and we'll plug that again at the end just as a reminder. So before we get started, what was your Sundance experience like this year? Were you on the ground in Park City? Did you do it virtually? Was it easy? Was it your first? Was it your last? <laughs> what were some of your highlights that aren't the three movies we're going to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to get a, an idea of how it's been for you the last couple of weeks. Yeah. So um, like when I cover any film festival, so I usually do TIFF here in Toronto. That's where I'm based. Um, this is my vacation from work, uh, which is great. And I do look forward to that and love it. Um, I haven't had the privilege of being on the ground for Sundance as yet. I actually started doing this during COVID when they had, they opened it up virtually and I was like, well, not using my vacation time for anything else. So I might as well, you know, watch some films and uh, get some more experience doing the, the whole festival piece. And 
I really enjoyed the first year at Sundance. They they did a kind of unique thing. They really encouraged a lot of people to um, do the the online premieres where they actually had like a virtual lobby where you could go into a chat room and talk to people about you know their experiences and their films and stuff before, um, which I really liked because it kind of did give you that festival feel. I find now that I do it virtually, I still like it, but I do miss that you know kind of camaraderie with other film lovers and I, I don't get to overhear those conversations in line or while you're sitting waiting for the movie to start that might change or shift your schedule a little bit or you might find a little gem that uh, might not have been on your radar just because you're eavesdropping I guess <laughs> so but so I do miss that aspect of it but it's still uh, highly enjoyable the platform they use is great and for the first time this year in Canada we actually had the Sundance app which we previously couldn't have. I had to stream everything off my computer last year, which was not ideal. Um, So the app was like transformative. It was great. Um, No issues there. Um, So yeah, it's, it's enjoyable, but someday hopefully I can make it to Utah. I hope so. Just like I'm hoping to make it to Toronto at some point, maybe even this year. That's the plan. Fingers are crossed. I feel like my, I'm on a rocket ship at this point. So that that's the next big step for me. Come on down. We, we I, I can definitely show you the ropes for TIFF. Yeah. Good. Or up, <laughs> as the case may be. You'll need to find me couch to crash on somewhere because Sundance just destroyed my <laughs> savings account. That That's another problem that is, with Sundance is it is not cheap to get there, unfortunately. Yes. Worth it. Yes. Awesome. But my goodness, it costs a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> No so doubt. what other movies did you see? Anything else that really struck a chord with you outside of the three that we're talking about today? Yeah, so definitely two out of the three that we're going to talk about are on my top list of the festival. Um, and I, I don't want to kind of harp on one of the other ones too much because you talked about it a lot uh, in your last podcast, but you hurt my feelings, which was uh, Nicole Hall of Centers. That's okay. It's it hurt joke. my Everybody, feelings a little bit. That... Anytime somebody <laughs> mentions the name, somebody has to make a joke. It's like, it's in the contract. Well, and that was one of the the things that I loved about the film was it's just about these little moments. And there's this this one moment that just sticks out in my mind, which is one of the reasons why this reteaming between Nicole Hall of Center and Julia Louis-Dreyfus, I think, works so well is that this her brand of observational comedy just meshes with her delivery. And I there's this moment where her character and Tobias Menzies' character are arguing and she's she's just she's really upset in this moment and then Tobias Menzies just says I love you and she's like she stops and she's like oh okay then never mind and she turns on her heel and walks away and I'm like haven't we all felt like dismissed by an I'm sorry or an I love you that kind of negates how we're feeling in that exact moment and I was like oh this moment is just exactly what this film is for me and I'm gonna think about that moment for a long time um and I loved Loved that film. But yes, I don't want to harp on it too much because you should just listen to the previous episode and then you can get a lot more insight on the film. But I also loved the uh, Michael J. Fox documentary still, which I believe will be coming out on Apple Plus soon. So people will be able to watch it there. I thought that the storytelling was really unique. And I'm glad we have this story now so that Fox himself could kind of narrate it. But the way that Davis Guggenheim kind of didn't just do a linear biography. He didn't just put clips up of, you know, Back to the Future with the little like Back to the Future 1985 in the corner. And he actually used the film clips to help Fox tell his story. And they complemented his narration. And I thought it was a really unique way to tell his story. It made it 
so entertaining. I mean, Fox is a very beloved actor. If you grew up in the 80s, like I did, or early 90s, he was everywhere. Um, and I feel like it was really great that we got to see his story told from this unique perspective. It was just very watchable and optimistic, and I, I loved it. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that one. I don't have it in a plan yet for one of my episodes. Might eventually cover it, though, because it was like right around my top 10 for the fest. I thought it was fantastic as well. And like you're talking about, it's just a really well-edited and crafted visual presentation that kind of mixes these different pieces of multimedia content with his narration. And it's it's just it's infectious energy that he has in general and it mm -hmm. comes through so strongly and really I love that it covers his career, but it, the family stuff was what was most touching to me. Like to see someone who is still so massively in love with his wife and so appreciative of his wife and grateful mm -hmm. for what she has done and how she has handled his disability and, and the Parkinson's, et cetera. And so he even got up, I think I told, talked about this in that episode, is he got up during the You Hurt My Feelings screenings just yep. to tell them how much he related to it because he loved his wife. It was, he's such a great dude. Yeah. Incredible human. Yeah. I saw the video of that actually. And it was, yeah, it was quite, quite touching. I mean, everybody loves him. What's not, what's not to love, <laughs> but uh, yep, you know, the sure. documentary kind of drives that home. So that was one. And, and I'll just, I'll do a quick shout out to other people's children as well, because it, it premiered at, at Venice and then was at TIFF, but I actually missed it there. I don't know why, um, but uh, I did see uh, Virginie Fira. I don't know. I'm probably not saying her name properly in another film at TIFF called Paris Memories, which um, was directed by Alice Winokur, who I like, like, love her movies. And I am convinced that uh, she's one of the best like working actors out there after seeing her in other people's children um, as well. And it's, it's, very different story um, than the very traumatic story I saw her in in this Paris Memories movie. But Other People's Children basically is a good examination of uh, the societal pressures and the pressures women place on themselves about having children and their complex relationship with maternal feelings and how, you know, we're, we're kind of pigeonholed into this timeline of when we have biologically have to have children and that might not mesh with where you are in your life if it does at all and and um you know are we really missing out on this what they call in the film this collective experience of motherhood um by not having children or can we fill that in other ways or do we need to so it was i think for women especially of my age not to date myself it was um something that very much spoke to me um with just a great central performance it was yeah it was a standout. Awesome. Yeah, I was sad I couldn't get to that one, but I am definitely looking forward to seeing it eventually when it gets some distribution. All right, cool. Well, let's get into this trifecta of movies. I put the one that we have some disagreement on in the middle. So we'll kind of bookend <laughs> oh, it with no. <laughs> pure, pure pleasantness. First up is Rye Lane, which was acquired by Searchlight Pictures before the festival. It stars David Johnson and Vivian Opara. It is directed and written, well, it's directed by Rain Allen Miller, and it is written by Nathan Bryan and Tom Melia, and it runs about 82 minutes. What's it about? Yaz and Dom, two 20-somethings both reeling from bad breakups, connect over the course of an eventful day in South London, helping each other deal with their nightmare exes and potentially restoring their faith and romance. So 
This is a directorial debut that I thought was just completely delightful. And I really enjoyed getting to experience a British rom-com for modern times. Not something that I'm used to. Typically, these are set in America, the ones that I see. This kind of felt like an updated version of the old school rom-coms we would get set in Britain back in, I guess, the late 90s or early 2000s era. When we first meet Dom, it, the movie sets a kooky tone right away. We see him ugly crying in a bathroom stall over this painful breakup. And Yaz comes into the same bathroom and they have this interaction. She's mysterious, but clever and snappy. And she is intrigued by Dom's apparent distress. After some witty banter to kick things off and really, I think, sets the tone for the kind of movie we're going to have. They end up further mingling at their friend's art show, which is one of two exhibits of this friend's art show that we see. And this particular guy's absolutely crazy idea of what is photographic art. Uh, the two set out on what is mostly a one night crazy style of experience. Uh, most of the movie it takes place in this singular day and night. Uh, that kind of jumps forward at the very end for a little bit of a coda. But over the course of this day and night, Yaz ends up trying to help Dom move on, and the two start to grow increasingly closer while, of course, fun hijinks ensue. Um, as a tease, I will tell you that there is a very, very, very fun cameo interaction as well that we both adored and are not going to spoil for you because you will probably squeal out loud just like Hillary and I did. Um, both performances by Johnson and Opara are super charming. And the London setting, which I'm interested to hear from Hillary more about because I've never been, but it makes it feel really fresh for American audiences, at least. The energy and the style of the film also give it some unique flavor and the brisk pacing is making it, it's constantly clever uh, with its writing. And I think that it keeps you only a few minutes away from another chuckle. It's easy, it's chill, it's a charming watch. I think my biggest critique of this movie is that it stays a little bit surface level with its characterizations, which is a typical rom-com thing, honestly. But it was pretty easy to overlook because Dom and Yaz are such a couple that you really want to root for, and it's just so much damn fun. There's a great message here about meeting people in person and winging it while you get to know each other. These two probably never would have swiped right on each other in a dating app, and it's refreshing to remember, remember that old school can have its perks. But uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, how did you feel about this one? So like you, I, I loved that after watching some heavier fare through a film festival, you can kind of come across this light, breezy kind of film. It's it has a very unique style to it. I will say that I didn't always love the director's choice of these super wide angled, almost like fish eyed kind of lens shots that she really relies on for a lot of the film, but it was a choice. And for a first time filmmaker, it was a really confident one. So, I mean, you chose it, stick with it. She did it. Good for her. So uh, <laughs> it was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't distracting enough to take away from my love of the film, but it was just something I found as an interesting mm -hmm. yeah. choice. 
and it kind of it, it played I guess on the quirkiness of the film in general yes that cameo is something that I will not spoil but it was something that I particularly loved but I guess the other thing that I enjoyed about it and maybe that's where the wide angle thing comes into it is that she uses London as kind of like this third character in the film so she always wants to kind of show a lot of it which for me was great because I spent two years living there and I go back every year and I love London and I especially love South London in fact she ends the film in one of my favorite spots that I visit every time I'm there right along South Bank and it's just yeah it, it made my heart swell just seeing my second home I guess on screen in such a loving way and I spent some time in Brixton, which is part of, you know, where they, they visit. And I was kind of mapping out where they were <laughs> on the screen, which was, which was a lot of fun. So the fact that, you know, London, you know, kind of was this, this character of the film, I, I really enjoyed. Did you, when we compare this one to other rom-coms, did you feel that there was a real connection between these two characters? Because it, it's something that I, I think it, kind of kept this one just a slight notch below maybe greatness for me. In most romantic films, you really truly believe that these two people have connected in a deep sort of way and are off to the races and probably going to have this relationship. I did not necessarily feel that way about Yaz and Dom. They were fun and really an interesting pairing. And I think that they their personality types offer each other something that is different to them than their normal world. And so I, mm-hmm. I but I, and I, I could see a world in which they absolutely can thrive and end up having this really great relationship, but it didn't, I think I had more fun with this than I did being like swept away on a romantic level. Does that make sense? Uh, yep. And I would a hundred percent agree with that. It's, it's much more, it leans far further into the comedy than the romantic aspect. But they also kind of address that a little bit in the end because he says when he's talking to his friends about meeting Yaz, like, oh, we just both weren't ready because that, you know, the vast majority of their time together is them getting over their exes and doing <laughs> things in, in kind of a strange way to help each other get over their exes. So they, our vision of them is kind of developing a friendship I think during the course of that one day, I suppose the coda would be the start of the romantic comedy part. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, I think. And I hadn't really even processed that, I don't think, out loud until just now with realizing what it was that was kind of just a little bit off for me. Not off, but different than mm-hmm. what a typical rom-com is. But it, it does. It has phenomenal energy. It's got a great soundtrack that has multiple songs you'll sing along with. Mm-hmm. And you'll just be bobbing your head. And this is a great movie to watch with a crowd as well. So I'm glad that it got picked up by a distributor that could give it a theatrical release because the energy in our theater was matching that of the film. There was lots of loud and boisterous laughter and comments towards the screen, <laughs> towards the characters. And, and that's always a good communal experience. Yeah. And I think that's one of the benefits of being on the ground and being at a film festival it certainly causes more exuberance around certain films for for better or for worse sometimes but yeah all right well next up is the much anticipated 
cat person. This was widely talked about going into the festival, I think as one of the expected front runners and ended up not really coming out of it that way. I would say it hasn't even picked been picked up for distribution yet, which is kind of crazy. Uh, when you look back at the articles that came out, like premiering what or previewing mm-hmm. what was going to be a Sundance, it was always on them. And yet here we are. So Cat Person stars Amelia Jones, one of a couple of movies that she was in this Sundance, following up on her uh, great performance in CODA last year. It also stars Nicholas Braun of Succession, uh, Geraldine Viswanathan. I have no idea if I'm saying that right. Uh, Hope Davis, Fred Malamed, and Isabella Rossellini. It is directed by Susanna Fogel, and it is written by Michelle Ashford, and it is based on the New York Times published short story by Kristen Rupinian. It's two hours long, and what is it about? College student Margot meets 33-year-old Robert at the movie theater where she works after a casual flirtation at the concession stand. They carry on conversations through texts. As their perceptions of each other collide, events spiral out of control. Well, it starts out as a meet cute and eventually turns pretty intensely complicated. Amelia Jones and Nicholas Braun, I think, have perfect, awkward, adorable chemistry as this couple who meet at a movie theater and then they start up this relationship via text messages. I really like the depiction of these conversations. I thought it was well done. This is not something new anymore. A lot of films are putting the texts uh, in dialogue onto the screen, and that's what they do here. But it captures the modern experience of trying to communicate with shortened phrases and heavy emoji use and even frequent autocorrect mistakes, (laughs) by the way, because... There will be moments where the screen will pop up a word. Usually it's Robert texting and he'll spell something wrong and then you'll see the screen back, back, back and then, you know, correct it. I was very plugged into that, almost a little bit distracting at times because I found a couple of editing errors where when he was writing something in real time on the screen, it was spelled one way. And then later there was a screenshot of it that someone was showing another character and it was spelled a different way. I was like, hmm, uh, you didn't catch that one. Anyway, I enjoy that aspect of the visual experience. Um, Since this is a movie that is between two movie lovers, a a relationship between two movie lovers, I should say, the script is full of fun film references, which I very much enjoyed, including a particularly brilliant deconstructing look at Harrison Ford as a romantic idol. I don't want to go too in-depth into it, but the movie suggests that perhaps what we think of as swoon-worthy from a previous era is really maybe not the behavior that we want to have people aspiring to nowadays. The movie balances multiple tones, I think, to a decent extent. I have, I don't want to use the word soured, but it was a much more fun premiere for me in person then it has remained in my head (laughs) ever since. So I think that there is a little bit of a needed tightening when it comes to balancing the traditional rom-com flavor of this with the psychological horror and eventually a really bombastic, crazy third act. Um, Throughout this, we see Margot 
constantly fearing death and it's visualized in her head. And when that happens, I found it to be a pretty terrifying kind of confrontation that put me on the edge of my seat. And I just didn't know what this movie was trying to do because it was kind of giving me whiplash uh, back and forth. I understood the reason for it, but the experience of it was a bit off. What I really love about this is how their relationship of this story examines how we handle honesty in dating and the ramifications of how we create a persona to present to others. And it reminds me a lot of You Hurt My Feelings, which you were just talking about, because it shines a light on the dangers of lying or faking who we are just to try and get what we want or to try and make someone else feel better in the moment. I also, from my male perspective, I will say, I mean, I guess it's an obvious thing, but there is a different way. I'm so excited to hear what you thought, Hillary, because you saw this differently than I did. But from my perspective, I thought it did a good job of capturing the female worry that is always present when meeting someone unknown. The movie starts with a really brilliant quote. Was it Margaret Atwood? I think it's Margaret Atwood. And it says, men are afraid that women will, what was it? Men, are, I should have written this down. Do you remember it? I, I have it written down, actually. Okay, it's what men, is it? Men, men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid men will kill them. Okay, yes. And it starts with that. And I think the movie does a good job of capturing that feeling. And it's important because it puts that in your head right off the bat. And you approach the film through that kind of lens. There are moments in this when I was totally stressed out. And honestly, I was worried for both of them. And I think that the characterizations of the two characters will reward multiple viewings. I'm going to hold off on what I think about the third act until you tell me what you thought, and then we'll go from there. Um, but I do really hope that this is a film that will push the conversation forward about how we engage in modern dating, because it takes the short story and it puts this new piece onto it into its third act that changes the dynamic of what the short story was trying to get at a bit. And so I understand that people might have problems with that. For me, it worked, but I know for you, maybe not quite as well. So why was that? I'm just, I'm so conflicted about this film. And I will tell you that before, like this morning when I was kind of doing some more writing, I wrote a good 850 words on this movie and still have problems classifying where I think it went a bit wrong. What I liked about the film was that you're right. As a woman, we are socially conditioned to be ever so mindful of our surroundings and any potential danger that can come into our lives. And, and they, they set this up with Margot from the get-go. She's walking home from work through campus and she tells her friends, like, hey, if I'm not home in five minutes, like, call the campus police. This is something that, you know, when I go out with my friends, I'm like, you let me know when you get home and I know how long it should take them to get there. And we have constant conversations. This is something that, you know, as a woman, we, we are very in tune with. And I think they did a good job in depicting that. And then in depicting how Margot wants to see the best in everybody. I mean, she tries to take in a stray Rottweiler, um, which I love Roddy's as a breed, don't get me wrong, Rottweiler owners, but they're stigmatized to be aggressive 
dogs and she takes it in and she wants to love it and take it in from this brainstorm and she wants to see the best in it and then has this Cujo-esque you know vision of this dog and this grisly murder scene kind of really sets you up for how she's going to visualize you know Robert moving forward where she steps out of this safe space they've created together in this online environment texting back and forth and having flirtatious texts seems fairly safe to her but when you're getting to know somebody and you have to take that into a real life situation, we definitely are conditioned into what's the worst case scenario here and how can we get out of it if something like that happens? The click of the door when it locks as he's driving her to their date and she imagines like he could murder me right now and drive me off into the countryside. <laughs> and of course, his his sense of humor is to say, I'm going to kill you <laughs> and yeah, think, exactly. think that's funny. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's not. Um, so yeah. So, the, but those are the sorts of things that, like, yeah. Sometimes when I get an, into an Uber, I'm just like, yeah, I should just message somebody and tell them where I'm going. Um, so I felt like it captured that very well. And then when the, there was a, a tipping point where they've created this character that has all this wherewithal and self awareness, and she's very concerned for her safety. And then in one like aspect, she leaves work and she's very worried that she's going to be followed home from work. And she, you hear all these, you know, you're hearing noises and everything's kind of exaggerated. And then she puts her earbuds in and blasts a Britney Spears song. Now, I love the Britney moment. Don't get me wrong, but no woman in her right mind is going to do that if she thinks that she's in danger. <laughs> and I was like, you've created this character and now you've just kind of demolished all of this work that you did to make her so keen and and aware of her surroundings and her safety and and that's where the the film starts to take a turn for me and that leads into that last kind of 15 20 minutes where it goes full throttle thriller and really adds all that original content from the uh, short story where now you question who who was worse here who was who's the predator who's the prey who's and I didn't want it to, to be that way because I feel like it negates and demolishes all of her womanly intuition leading up to that, to that point. And it makes me think, I, I just don't know where the filmmakers were coming from. Is it, is it that as women, maybe we shouldn't be as worried? Maybe that, that worry escalates things in a way that we're taking away from potential relationships or connections because we're so overly concerned and if that's where they were going with it then I, I just I have a bit of an issue with that message the messaging at the end just got too messy for me and I just wasn't sure where they were sitting yeah it's ambiguous they leave it ambiguous on person or on person <laughs> that's the title on purpose and like for example they don't answer the question in the short story of whether he has cats. The, the title of the short story comes from the fact that during their text conversations, he tells her that he has two cats and she does not see the cats when she goes to his mm -hmm. house. And so she's constantly wondering, she's taking this one little tiny piece of information. She's blowing it up in her head as, is this a sign that he's lying and what else could he be lying about? Right. And it's, it's how we navigate this and, and start to like, it becomes a snowball in the movie. They answer the question very definitively. And it's part of that mixed messaging that you're talking about. And so that's where I've come to kind of like, I enjoy it because I like the fact that it 
says either one of these people could have changed the direction of this relationship by being more upfront and honest with the other one or by asking direct questions and getting answers that they truly had or wanted, but they were just kind of avoiding and instead making up stories in their mind. Both of them were responsible for that. And I liked mm -hmm. that because I think that that's accurate. And I enjoy poking at both sides being responsible. It's kind of mixed messaging because it doesn't fit with like what you're talking about. And the original idea of the short story and also the vibe of the character in the beginning of the movie, it's supposed to be all about her fear. But then it turns mm -hmm. into this situation where you could read it. And like you said, she's in some ways responsible. <laughs> I mean, you could absolutely mm -hmm. put blame on her and you could read this as dismissive of some of the things he does that are pretty gross because he was wronged in a big, bad, worse way. And it, and it does get kind of messy there. So mm -hmm. like I said, I like it because it's a conversation starter, but it is not a movie that you're going to want to have create your way of thinking for you. You know, if that yeah. makes sense, you need to dig into the why of it. If you engage. I, I will say that both Nicholas Braun and Melia Jones were great. The very intentionally horrible on-screen kiss that they share in this movie, the fact that they managed to get through it without laughing and get a good take was pretty remarkable. Um, it was the most cringeworthy thing I think I've ever seen. <laughs> Agreed. I've, I, I don't, I mean, it's acting. Like to act that badly, to act and kiss that poorly takes skill. Because it was, it is horrendous. And and again, that's another like great theater moment where everybody in this gigantic filled audience is just oh, like, you know, completely reacting to what they're seeing on screen. I can only imagine. I was doing that and my dog was the only one staring at me and not wondering, not knowing what was going on. So it would have <laughs> been nice to have some uh, camaraderie in that moment. <laughs> Would you recommend people who have not read the short story read it before or after they see the movie, assuming this eventually becomes available? Well, I read it after, and it, and it was nice to see that when they were working from it, they actually did follow the story quite closely, including like just some of the scenes and the wording and everything like that. So I would say I would say after, yeah, I I think that that will you know don't don't ruin your perspective on the movie and maybe its conclusion. Let that speak for itself first and then you can see what the source material is all about i would agree with that i read it afterwards and I, I think i was glad that i did that so yeah that's cat person it's divisive it has not taken off i mean i don't even i guess i'm not super familiar with how sunday's works could these movies legitimately just not get distribution if i mean surely someone's gonna pick this up and throw it on a streamer for some I, amount of money oh yeah like hands down i will especially with uh, Jones and Nicholas Braun. I mean, the new season of Succession starting soon. I'm sure someone will pick it up to give that a little bit of a, you know, lift. Succession needs all the help it can get, right? But uh, yeah, some of these films disappear into the abyss, <laughs> but I don't think this will be one of them. I'm excited for, well, maybe I'm not excited for the discourse, actually, to be honest. <laughs> I'm having my fun discourse now, so I'm getting it out of the way. I'm not fun. I'm not excited about what happens when this movie hits film Twitter and properly when everybody has seen it because i think it's going to be oh it's going to be nasty but mm -hmm. yeah anyway i mean i thought it was enjoyable even in its kind of bonkers craziness it's well acted and fun 
if not slightly problematic at times. Yes. Yeah, there you have it. All right. Well, we can definitely agree on this third and final film. That is without a doubt. This is one of both of our favorite films of the festival for sure. It is theater camp also was picked up by searchlight pictures and will get a theatrical release. I'm excited about that. And it won the U S dramatic special jury award for ensemble. It stars Molly Gordon, Ben Platt, Noah Galvin, Jimmy Tetro, Hattie Harrison, Io Edabiri, Amy Sedaris, Caroline Aaron, Nathan Lee Graham, Owen Thiel, and Alan Kim. It's directed by Molly Gordon and Nick Lieberman, and it is written by Noah Galvin, Molly Gordon, Nick Lieberman, and Ben Platt. And it runs 94 minutes. What's it about? When the founder of a rundown theater camp in upstate New York falls into a coma right before the summer session, the eccentric staff must band with her broy son, to keep the camp afloat. I can't believe that's in an official synopsis right now. I just, I, so I just copy and paste these. I didn't actually read it until right this moment, but that's not a word. Broy is not a word. Listen, he is kind of a himbo, but it is not a broy is not a word. anyway. <laughs> I am 100% certain that theater camp is the Sundance film I will rewatch the most. I have already promised that my musical loving college age daughter that I will be taking her to see it in theaters. So I'm super excited about that. I think experiencing something made by people in a specific industry with so much joy for its subject matter, especially when it's something that you share the passion for, is just really a wonderful thing. This is a mockumentary love letter to theater performers and musical fans with almost pitch-perfect comedy and plenty of famous songs to briefly sing along with. If you want a comparison, think best in show, but for theater kids. As the synopsis mentioned, the story starts off when the beloved low-cost theater camp owner, the camp, by the way, is brilliantly named Adirondacks. It's in the Adirondacks Mountains, and it's called Adirondacks, A-C-T-S. And if you're at all familiar with theater, that's a very common thing. So anyway, I liked that. Uh, anyway, Joan, played by Amy Sedaris, falls into a coma during a rousing performance of Honestly Sincere from Bye Bye Birdie. So I personally was instantly hooked because that's a favorite musical of mine. And I was like, I feel seen. I, it immediately set the tone for the kind of film we're going to see. And from there, her very much not a theater kid son, Troy, has to run the camp over the summer and stave off this hostile takeover from a neighboring rich kids camp while amos played by ben platt and rebecca diane played by molly gordon these two longtime best friends who have been responsible for running the summer program at the camp have to write and compose a musical to teach a very diverse group of talented kids troy is hilarious he offers some really fun comedic relief that is not like the rest of the comedy from the theater side because he just doesn't understand it. He's not intentionally harmful to the camp's progress. He's just out of touch with that world. And so he can't make effective decisions about its future, but he does have an arc and a journey that he goes on. And it's really fun and heartwarming to see play out. The pacing is breezy and it touches on AKA makes fun of most elements of theater production and 
the array of eclectic personality types that you typically find among artists of this kind. In my initial review, I actually had pegged this as a best ensemble contender. And like I said, sure enough, it won. Everyone is fantastic. The kids are outstanding. But Molly Gordon is really maybe the standout here. She gives a hilarious, touching performance as someone who is struggling with wanting to move on and kind of have her own career in a different way and not necessarily be tied to doing the same thing over and over, which Ben Platt's character, her longtime partner, friend, is is not having a hard time except Noah Galvin also was a standout, not for most of the film, very involved, but once he does come into this and in, in his uh, on his own at the end, it just knocked my socks off. Uh, the finale performance is incredible. I was happy crying throughout. The song is fantastic. I want to sing it. I want to blast it on the stereo constantly as soon as I possibly can. I can't wait to see this again. I truly believe this is the kind of wholesome, rousing, hysterical, highly quotable as well picture that is going to find a huge fandom. Musicals rule. This is awesome. I know you feel the same way. and. I'm so glad that I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not alone. And I, yeah, what else can I say about this movie? Because you summarized it really well. I did not go to theater camp, but I did go to music camp. And I feel like it was oh, kind of similar. <laughs> really? <laughs> and, uh, do tell. I did um, for vocal music. So I feel like I knew some of these people. And what I liked about it is because it was written by people who, as you mentioned, love this industry and this you know, arm of entertainment is that while there's lots of jokes about certain people in it, we're never laughing at them. We're laughing with them. Um, I never feel like it's specifically making fun of people in a derogatory way because they're all part of that, you know, world. So the fact that you were like, oh, I, I felt really seen. I was like, I feel seen by this movie. Like these are, these were my people. And I mean, I do feel like people with some form of theater background, or at least that just love musical theater will be connected to this film in a very different way than someone who knows absolutely nothing about musical theater, albeit the comedy is accessible enough that I feel like, you know, they, they can certainly find some humor in it. But most people who really enjoy this film, I think will be because they love theater so dang much. <laughs> um, I felt I heard some comment commentary about the fact that this might work better as a series than in this short 94 minutes. And I feel like that was because they just wanted to spend way more time with these characters. And absolutely. If, if they made a show out of this, I would watch the hell out of it. hundred <laughs> percent agree. Like they can still do that. That's the thing. Like yes. I, I would love for this to be one of those movies that kicks off. Like there's infinite opportunity to continue this because it's a summer camp. Absolutely. You can, throw rotate in characters you could have ben platt go through some sort of struggle where you know he does it the next year by himself with well maybe but anyway like you you could take it some directions yeah absolutely and I, i'm used to seeing noah galvin in the good doctor <laughs> so i'm not used to seeing him in this in this stage production and, and mind you he took over for ben platt on broadway in dear evan hansen so you know it, not surprising that uh he has this amazing theatrical presence in that last you know 20 minutes that last finale oh I, I watched an episode of the good Walk doctor the other day and i was like i cannot see you in the same light anymore can you please sing and dance on <laughs> the show 
That's amazing. It didn't happen as much as I willed it into being. <laughs> this is the one movie that I am going to probably rewatch. I'm trying so hard not to do that because I want to get in as many of these new films viewings as I can over this weekend before they drop the hammer on a Sunday night and mm -hmm. cut everything off. But I was like, this is the one. Like, I I just want to see it again. I, I mm -hmm. just want to. And luckily, it's pretty quick. You know, it's only an hour and a half, but it's just perfect for that hour and a half. And yeah. I'm so excited to see it again. Did you have any favorite, like, songs or musicals that they parodied in this one? Like I did, <laughs> like the Bye Bye Birdie for me? I don't know. I think the original music, like all of the original music in the last section is so great. I just, yeah. I, I want to re-listen to all of it. I wish they had extended versions of the songs because they do present them just as little kind of clips of songs. And I wonder whether they actually recorded longer versions. If they do and they want to release that on a soundtrack, I will also buy it. So, you know, there's potential if, here. <laughs> if you're listening to Searchlight Pictures, please do please. that. 100%. I will buy that as well. And I know plenty of friends that would rush to do the same. And yeah. I agree. I, I feel like this is just, this is one of those like cult classics that, you know, 20 years from now, people will talk about with as much affection as we talk about Best in Show, let's say. Yeah, I do wonder though, like <laughs> you mentioned how theater lovers, we both talked about that, how you get more out of this. I've really only seen reactions from people that sought out to see it because they love <laughs> the material. I haven't heard from anyone that specifically was like, well, I don't like musicals, but I'm going to watch this anyway. And here's my reaction. I would be curious if it can bridge that gap, or maybe it helps us see how big musicals are when it comes to theaters. I mean, I feel like most big musical adaptations do fairly well in the theaters. Yeah. So I feel like we know that. I mean, look at even The Greatest Showman was, was yeah. crazy successful. You know, when, when a movie includes good music, it speaks to a lot of people. Um, yeah, I, I think there's enough, there's a lot of inside humor here. Like as we we both kind of uh, commented to one another about them using the tear stick on stage so and good. saying, it's like doping for actors. Do you want to be the Lance Armstrong of theater? It was like, <laughs> like those sorts of things I feel like are kind of very inside jokey, but I feel like there's enough humor, you know, outside of that. And Troy is that accessibility portal into this world where if you're not really into musical theater, maybe you'll kind of just be more in tune with his perspective. Yeah. Cause he's the TikTok things. generation. He's all about YouTube and trying to get his clicks and website yeah. hits up and get famous really easily. And so I think so too. I think he's a very accessible character to get people into the world from that perspective. Yeah. And I mean, that the ensemble has so many familiar faces now. I mean, he's on home economics. You have one of the stars of The Bear. You have, you know, again, Noah Galvin's from The Good Doctor. Most people know Ben Platt. So it's there's a lot of accessible faces there. Uh, Patty Harrison, who was in one of my favorite Sundance films from a couple of years ago, Together Together, which everyone should watch. But, uh, you know, there's enough of them that I also think that people who don't know musical theater as much will still be able to find enjoyment here i cross my fingers at least anyways that that will be the case and that people will keep an open mind to it even if they don't love musical theater as much as we clearly do <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i agree and i will leave it at that that's a good note so yeah keep your eyes out for this one 
I would expect it will be releasing sooner rather than later. Uh, mm-hmm. As soon as Searchlight can get that campaign up and running, I bet it will be in theaters and then it will probably quickly go to streaming because they know that this thing is just going to, people are going to want to watch it over and over and over. And it will be a huge seller to what it, what it's actually don't even know where Searchlight Pictures might go to streaming. I hope it goes somewhere to streaming. I shouldn't have guessed about that. I want to say that some of the things from Searchlight, at least in Canada, come to Disney Plus. So yeah, because um, they're fo- they're old Fox, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh so, gosh. I mean, come on. Like this is yeah Disney. If it's Disney still, like they're gonna want this on Disney Plus. Uh, yes, sooner but but please release it on Blu-ray so I can also buy it again. Oh, Searchlight, please listen to the podcast. Thank you. Yes. Give us <laughs> a Blu-ray and give us a soundtrack extended version. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> well. Also, thank you, Hillary, for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. It has been a blast. I'm excited. Hopefully, it's not the last time we get to talk. Where yeah, can thanks people... for having me. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Pleasure is definitely mine, though. Where can people find your work again? Um, where can they find you on social media, et cetera? Yeah, so um, you can find most of my reviews are over at uh, Live for Films. And uh, my uh, Twitter feed will usually be updated with all of those. And you can find me although I, I have mostly a, a veterinary name instead of my uh, film name at uh, Pet Doc Hill. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of our Sundance coverage on FF+. There is much more to come, so stay tuned for that. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling film.